You're listening to the eFree Lethbridge Podcast. Good morning. I appreciate and consider it an honor to be here to share God's Word with you this morning. As I think about uh, Father's Day today, I'm thinking about my dad, and I'm thankful for my dad today. He went to be with Jesus six years ago last month. I have a lot of memories of my dad playing with me and my little brother. We grew up in Langley. Lots of baseball, lots of street hockey, lots of soccer. We watched a lot of sports. And then when our home life got bad, he and mom separated while remaining in the same house. It was dad who was always around. We chose to live with him after the divorce. And back in 2017, I had the privilege of being with my dad for the last 10 days of his life. And up until that time, I had never heard my dad sing out loud. He would go to church every morning, every Sunday morning, and he would stand and he would kind of mouth the words, but never out loud, very self-conscious. But on his deathbed, he sang out songs like, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Songs like Amazing Grace. Dad would ask me to read scripture, but to read it really slowly so that he could really soak it in. And I was with him when he died. I saw him take his last breath. Shortly after Dad died, I got an unexpected email. A few days before he'd been placed in palliative care, my stepsister had recorded about a two-minute video of Dad talking about things like forgiveness and hope. And in the video, my dad says this, the main thing that Christ gives you is hope. If you don't have something to look forward to tomorrow, there's no hope. Whereas with Christ, you've always got the assurance of dwelling forever with the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who molded you out of specks of dust, and yet he thought you were valuable enough to die for. We have hope because Jesus Christ is resurrected from the dead. Jesus Christ has defeated sin and the devil, and he has defeated death, and in his love and in his grace, he saves us. As Jeremy mentioned, I've been asked to speak on Acts 24, 25, 26 as part of your series in the book of Acts. These chapters that we're going to look at today record Paul's court appearances before Felix and Festus and Agrippa. Today we're going to see how Paul takes these opportunities to speak of the hope that he has, to speak of the hope that we have because Jesus Christ is our resurrected Lord and Savior. So by the time we arrive in Acts chapter 24, Paul's been arrested and he's been imprisoned just like he used to do to Christians. And in these chapters, we see courtroom scenes, preliminary hearings with Paul, the accused. The Jewish leaders want to accuse Paul, judge Paul, condemn Paul, kill Paul. But he's a Roman citizen, so he's under a measure of protection. Paul's in Roman custody, and so local Roman leadership is overseeing the case. In our chapters, the charges against Paul are described more than once. In Acts 24, the Jewish leaders have their lawyers state the charges before Governor Felix in verses 5 and 6. He says, we have found this man to be a troublemaker who is constantly stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the cult known as the Nazarenes. Furthermore, he was trying to desecrate the temple when we arrested him. So first, see that Paul is charged with treason. He's a plague. He's a pest who's causing uprisings, causing insurrection, causing sedition. 
Secondly, Paul's charged with heresy. He's leading a cult. He's teaching error about God. And third, Paul is charged with desecrating the temple, profaning the building that was the holiest place for the Jewish people. Two years later, we're in Acts 25, and the charges against Paul are restated by the Jewish leaders, this time before the new governor who's named Festus. Festus reveals the charges when he's speaking with King Agrippa, verses 17 through 20. And Festus says, when his accusers came here for the trial, I didn't delay. I called the case the very next day and ordered Paul brought in. But the accusations made against him weren't any of the crimes I expected. Instead, it was something about their religion and a dead man named Jesus, who Paul insists is alive. I was at a loss to know how to investigate these things. Then a little later, Festus explains his take on the charges against Paul. Verses 25 through 27, in my opinion, he's done nothing deserving death. However, since he appealed his case to the emperor, I've decided to send him to Rome. But what shall I write the emperor? For there's no clear charge against him. So I have brought him before all of you, and especially you, King Agrippa, so that after we examine him, I might have something to write. For it makes no sense to send a prisoner to the emperor without specifying the charges against him. Festus doesn't understand the accusations, but maybe King Agrippa can help him since he knows the Jewish faith. And so we've heard the Jewish leaders' voices. We've heard Festus's voice. Now I want us to listen to Paul's voice and his take on the charges that are levied against him. In Acts 26, verses 6 through 8, we see that Paul actually reframes the accusations. This is what he says. I'm on trial because of my hope in the fulfillment of God's promise made to our ancestors. In fact, that is why the 12 tribes of Israel zealously worship God day and night, and they share the same hope I have. Yet, Your Majesty, they accuse me for having this hope. Why does it seem incredible to any of you that God can raise the dead? Paul's on trial because of his hope. Paul's on trial because God has kept his word. God has kept his promises. Paul's on trial because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this now leads us to Paul's defense. You know, in our culture, the word hope has a meaning that's closely related to wish. We hope for something like we wish for something. We hope it happens, but really it's up in the air. You may say, I hope I get a good golf game for Father's Day. I hope I may get a good barbecued steak for Father's Day. I, may, I hope I may get and whatever you fill in the blank for Father's Day. My dad grew up in Saskatchewan, and so he was a big Rough Riders fan, and he would say, I hope the Rough Riders win the Grey Cup this year. I hope the Vancouver Canucks win the Stanley Cup one day. <laughs> but it's a hope that's uncertain. It's a wish. It might even be wishy-washy. But biblical hope, New Testament hope, is deeper and far more sure, far more certain. New Testament hope can be defined as the desire of good with the expectation of receiving it. 
Tim Keller, in his book, Hope in Times of Fear, wrote, the biblical word for hope means profound certainty. Christians view even the hardest circumstances as part of a history that's guided by God at every turn, not merely every turn toward not merely some kind of afterlife, but toward the resurrection of our bodies and souls into new remade heavens and earth. And all this hope centers on one explosive event, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've already heard the charges against Paul. Now we're going to examine his defense. Paul dismisses the charges against him. Simply, he's innocent. But then Paul steers the inquiry to where he wants it to go. Paul's defense against the charges is hope. God has kept his word through his Messiah, specifically through Jesus' death and resurrection. And we see Paul's defense recorded for us in chapter 24, verses 10 through 21. I'm not going to read it all. But in this passage, we see that Paul confesses that he follows the way. And it's not some wayward sect. It's the fulfillment of God's promises in the law and the prophets. And then notice in verse 15 that Paul aligns himself with his accusers. He says, I have the same hope in God that these men have that he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous. In verse 21, Paul repeats what he'd already said before the Sanhedrin. I'm on trial before you today because I believe in the resurrection from the dead. Paul's defense has him reframing the charges against him. This is all about the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul affirms this yet again when he appears before King Agrippa and Festus and Bernice 26, verses 6 and 7. I'm on trial because of my hope in the fulfillment of God's promise made to our ancestors. Your majesty, they accuse me for having this hope. This is all about hope in God keeping his promises. This is all about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. This is all about Paul's hope in the resurrection. As I mentioned before, our family, we've watched a lot of sports over the years. And if you watch sports, you're likely familiar with a concept, with a feature called the TSN turning point. It's a goal. It's a save. It's a big hit. It's an error in the game that, co- that changes the course and eventually changes the outcome of the game. Meeting the resurrected Christ was the TSN turning point in Paul's life. In 26 verse 12, and the verses following, we see that what transformed, convinced, convicted Paul was being confronted with the resurrected Jesus. It changed everything for Paul. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything for us, too. And so when our believing loved ones die, we have resurrection hope. 1 Thessalonians 4, we don't grieve like people who don't have hope because since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who've died. We have this hope. And so when we face our own demise and death, we have resurrection hope. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about Jesus' resurrection and how it changes everything for us. And Paul writes, thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have hope. And so when we struggle and when we suffer and when we face our fear of death, we have resurrection hope. 
Hebrews chapter 2 is about how we have a living high priest. And the writer says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could Jesus set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. And so we have hope. The resurrection is not just an event, and it's not just a doctrine, and the resurrection must never, ever, ever be confined to Easter Sunday. The resurrection is not even just a certain hope. The resurrection is a person. Speaking to Martha after her brother Lazarus died, Jesus declares in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who believes in me and believes, everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? And the question for Martha is the question for you. Do you believe in Jesus? Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Do you know him? Do you know him? Most people like, most people love the ideas of resurrection, a good afterlife in heaven. These ideas, as our culture understands them, they appeal to most, they soothe most, they give a sense of hope. But the idea of judgment is something else altogether. People don't like to hear about judgment unless it's for other people who are so obviously morally inferior to me. But the truth is, you can't have resurrection without judgment. The reality of a coming day of judgment is revealed throughout both the Old and New Testaments. One day, every person will stand before Jesus as judge. One day, you will stand before Jesus. Jesus teaches this. For example, Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. And Paul teaches this. For example, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, we must all stand before Christ to be judged. You know, a common Disney theme throughout the years is to follow your heart so many songs speak the same message, be true to yourself, follow your heart. Did you know that this is actually a biblical message? Ecclesiastes 11.9. We find this. You who are young, be happy while you're young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. But what Disney songs and pop culture miss is the second half of the verse. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. Our world loves the first half of this verse, not so much the second. And God's judgment is founded on righteousness. The standard for judgment isn't Hear this clearly. The standard for judgment isn't being true to yourself, isn't staying true to your own heart. The standard for judgment is God's perfect righteousness. 
We're accountable to God for our choices and our actions and our words, for what we do and for also what we fail to do in obedience to God's moral law. And nobody measures up. Everyone falls short. We are dead in our sin, deserving of God's holy wrath. This is what the Bible teaches. But that's why Jesus' death and resurrection are such good news. He pays the penalty for our sin on the cross. We find forgiveness in Jesus' shed blood. We receive eternal life from him who is the resurrection and the life. But people react strongly to the idea, to the truth of a coming judgment. In fact, we see this in our passage in Acts 24, 24 and 25. We read, a few days later, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Sending for Paul, they listened to him as he told them about faith in Christ Jesus, as he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming day of judgment, Felix became frightened. Go away for now, he said. When it's more convenient, I'll call for you again. Paul speaks about the necessity of trusting in Jesus. Paul speaks about the need to obey God, the need to fulfill the requirements of God's righteousness. Paul speaks about self-control. Paul speaks about judgment, and Felix is frightened. He trembles. He's terrified. Felix might have just come that day, maybe just wanting to hear about the different religious views that Paul and the religious leaders were quibbling about. But what Felix hears instead is his personal responsibility for his own morality and his accountability before the God who created him. And Felix's frightened response is to tell Paul to go away. For the moment, at least, he cancels Paul. We see in Felix and we see in our world that it's easier to ignore the truth of judgment. It's easier to deny the truth of our accountability before God. It's easier to deceive ourselves about the reality of God's judgment and wrath against our sin. But if we ignore and if we deny and if we deceive ourselves, then we miss out on God's solution. We miss out on God's gracious offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. And so my question for you this morning is this. What are you going to do on the day of judgment? In what are you putting your hope? In whom are you placing your hope? Where do you place your hope? May your trust, may your confidence, may your hope be in Jesus and what he's done. As the old hymn goes, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. In our chapters today, Paul speaks of hope. He speaks of resurrection. He speaks of coming judgment. Paul speaks of his transforming experience with the resurrected Christ. And whenever we encounter Christ in Scripture, we have to decide what are we going to do with him? How will we respond to his teachings? How will we, how will we respond to his work? How will we respond to Jesus Christ himself? In chapters 24 through 26 of Acts, to the person of Jesus Christ, to the hope of the resurrection, and to the certainty of a coming day of judgment, we get to see a number of different responses. We see the response of the Jewish leaders. For them, Jesus is nothing more than the originator, the subject of a cult, a sect of people who are just a bunch of troublemakers. 
We see the response of the Roman governor, Felix. In Acts 24, 25, he's terrified. He cuts off Paul from speaking anymore. It's like Felix is plugging his ears and closing his eyes. He can't deal with what he's hearing. And so he tells Paul, just go away. We see the response of the Roman governor Festus in Acts 26. Paul's explaining how Jesus fulfills scripture. Paul's giving his testimony. Verse 22, we pick it up. Paul says, God protected me right up to this present time. So I can testify to everyone from the least to the greatest. I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead. And in this way announce God's light to Jews and Gentiles alike. And right away, Festus jumps in. Festus interrupts. Festus intervenes. What Paul's saying doesn't fit his worldview. He can't deal with it. And so he minimizes Paul. He marginalizes Paul. For the moment, at least, he also cancels Paul. And he says, Paul, you're insane. You're out of your mind. Paul, you're crazy. Because if Festus can convince himself that Paul's insane, then he doesn't have to listen to what Paul's saying. We see the response of King Agrippa in verse 26, sorry, Acts 26, verse 27. There's a fascinating back and forth going on between Paul and Agrippa. Paul's looking for a faith response from Agrippa toward Jesus. In verse 27, Paul asks directly, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And Agrippa knows exactly what Paul's up to. In verse 28, he says, we read, Agrippa interrupted him. Do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? Agrippa's answer to Paul's direct question is avoidance. He evades the question. He wiggles out of having to make a response to Jesus. And we read that even though he seems sympathetic to Paul and to his message, Agrippa stood up and left. Verse 30. But no response to Jesus is still a response to Jesus. We also see today the response that Paul's calling everyone to have to the truth of the crucified and resurrected Jesus who is returning and who will one day judge all people. Acts 26, verse 20, Paul says this, I preached first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that all must repent of their sins and turn to God and prove they've changed by the good things they do. Paul preaches repentance and a turning to God. Repentance is a change of mind, a change of thinking that's accompanied by changed behavior. You're walking away from God, and your back is to God, and you're walking towards sin, living the me-centered life, and then you encounter Jesus Christ. And repentance is a complete 180-degree turn, and now you turn your face toward God, and you turn your back to sin, and you turn your back to the me-centered life, and you now live the Christ-centered life. In the Bible, repentance is never mere words, never just a mental agreement with a set of doctrinal statements. Repentance is the proof of life transformation. Repentance results in changed behavior. Repentance doesn't save you. This is not a works-based salvation. Repentance is the evidence that you have already been saved. And repentance is the daily posture, the daily practice of Jesus followers. Not just something you do once at the beginning 
of discipleship. Repentance is day by day for us. So Lord Jesus, help us have humble, repentant hearts before you. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to ask the worship team to come back up, but you can now, I guess, if that works for you. Today, what is your response to what Paul speaks of in our passage? What is your response to the hope he talks about, to resurrection, to the judgment to come? Well, I ask you, what has been your response in the past? Has your response been like one of the characters that we've seen today? Have you been frightened, terrified by the reality of righteousness and the reality of your personal accountability to God and the inevitability of the judgment to come? Have you written off the resurrection as far-fetched, as crazy, as maybe just a crutch for those who are weak? Have you simply avoided responding to Jesus, his death and resurrection? Or have you responded with repentance and trust in Jesus? Today I ask you, how do you now respond? Does the resurrection fill you with dread because of the coming judgment? Or does the resurrection fill you with hope because sin and death have been defeated and you have a loving Savior? Hallelujah. Praise the one who sets me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.